Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 704 of the podcast and it is Friday the 21st of July 2023 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Michael Brent Collings about writing from the shadow side and we talk about what that means for us and how we differ in terms of what we were told was unacceptable by our family, our culture and for me, one of my school teachers as well as helpful and harmful expressions of the shadow for ourselves and others. But before we get into the intro section, I wanted to clarify what the shadow is, because I've seen some comments that imply people think it's just the stuff that goes in horror novels, (laughs) but it's not. (laughs) Uh, Here's a quote from Dr. Connie Zwieg, whose book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, I'm reading right now. So here's the quote. The shadow is that part of us that lies beneath or behind the light of awareness. It contains our rejected, unacceptable traits and feelings. It also contains our hidden gifts and talents that have remained unexpressed or unlived. As Carl Jung put it, the essence of the shadow is pure gold. So it's not just about writing about death or in the horror or erotica genres. Death and sex are indeed often considered taboo, but the shadow could be many things for you. For example, as I go through this process of writing the next book on the shadow, uh, something I've realised is that being considered lazy is in my shadow, and so is being useless. So lazy and useless would be two things that I absolutely reject and that are considered bad by my family and my culture. There's a Western culture thing, I guess. But I have pushed them so far into my shadow, so far into unacceptable, that I find it hard to rest. I am a workaholic. (laughs) And I've also been obsessed by being useful for the last 15 years. And I'll be talking a bit about this as I talk more about my my, uh, pivot coming up. But some of these things have essentially shaped my current life and I need to accept parts of those in order to be whole. And I want you to consider what might be in your shadow. And a good way to think about this is what is unacceptable to you in terms of behaviours or attitudes and yes, topics, and then question where that comes from. And Michael Brent and I have some really interesting things of stuff that was considered unacceptable in his family and stuff that is considered unacceptable in mine. And also I talk about this teacher who told me something when I was sort of 11, 12, that has really shaped um, many, many years and that I'm now sort of now trying to escape that. (laughs) So hopefully our conversation will spark some questions for you and enable you to go deeper into your writing. 
And of course, my next project will be the long-awaited, if you've been listening for years, the long-awaited shadow book, which is about writing from this shadow side. And I'd like your help to make it the most useful book. (laughs) And there's the useful thing again. I do want this to be useful. Uh, I have a survey. So if this topic resonates with you, please would you do the survey at jfpen.com forward slash shadow survey. I'd love for you to do it as soon as possible because I am going to start getting into this, but certainly before the end of August 2023, depending on when you're listening to this. So that's jfpen.com forward slash shadow survey and my discussion with Michael Brent coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing and author things, if you're interested in direct sales, then check out the Wish I'd Known Then podcast on this topic. Sarah and Jamie go through five different kinds, from a basic buy button to a landing page, then into the different kinds of store, whether that's Shopify or WooCommerce or Payhip to Kickstarter, and then the subscription model. And it's great to have it sort of set out in that way, because I obviously now talk about Shopify, but that and Kickstarter as well. But these are not the only ways to sell direct. So definitely go check that out. And it's interesting reflecting on this, because I've started to use the term wide, I say to people, oh, publishing wide. To me, that now means direct sales through either Kickstarter and or Shopify for me. And then I'm putting Amazon, Apple, Ingram, Kobo, everything else uh, into Findaway, you know, all the other stores I'm putting into this kind of other basket. So I've, I feel like in the past, I used to, we used to use the term wide to mean anything. Uh, well, not just anything but Amazon, but Amazon plus all the other stores is wide. But now I'm almost feeling like there's store publishing and then there's wide publishing which to me is Shopify and Kickstarter and that so I don't know if that's just me (laughs) let me know uh, what you think about the term wide Um, but I'm really shifting my mindset around this so it's interesting to listen to Sarah and Jamie talk about it so that's wish I'd known then check out that podcast on your app wherever you're listening to this And another recommendation is Becca Symes' QuickCast, which is now on audio podcast feeds, which is just fantastic. So that's the QuickCast or search for Becca Symes, S-Y-M-E. Now, this is great as I don't consume video and many of us podcast listeners don't really do video and it's only been available on YouTube until recently. Now Becca's been on this show several times. She's very wise. We've talked about Clifton Strength stuff. We talked about the intuitive writer last year or whatever that was. Definitely one of my recommended sources for author mindset stuff. Some of the recent episodes on the Quit Cast include productivity and burnout. And I think maybe if you are feeling that you're suffering from burnout, think about whether you have the same shadow issue as I do, which puts lazy into the shadow and what you think lazy means. <laughs> Jonathan will often say to me, you know, humans have weekends, like normal people have weekends. If you had a normal job, you'd have a weekend. (laughs) And I'm like, no, no, must work harder. So yeah, something to think about. 
Another interesting thing this week is the self-publishing advice blog has an article on seven success factors for neurodivergent and cognitively cognitively impaired self-published authors, and it includes loads of quotes from authors who identify with these areas and how they make things work. The tips include control your space, find the right teams and tools to work with, how to work in blocks of time. And don't feel obliged to follow all the advice, as well as rest before you are forced to. And I was reading these, and I was like, okay, I understand that some people are neurodivergent, cognitively, cognitively impaired,、uh, whether you have been assessed or you identify that way. But I read these tips, and they apply to all of us. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure whether that,、uh, what that means, but I do think that. These tips are great for everyone, and certainly、um, don't feel obliged to follow all the advice. Is something remember you don't have to agree with me or follow anything I say. <laughs> so yes, that's at the selfpublishingadvice.org、uh, site, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And in the AI and futurist stuff on the Mindsets and Moonshots podcast, which I again recommend, have a listen to Emad Mostak, who's the founder of Stability AI, which is the main one that is looking to bring generative AI to the world and do country-specific、uh, models, which I think is really interesting. It's also open source.、Uh, and Peter Diamandis talk about outcomes of an AI future. And、they discuss the challenges and opportunities of the AI age, the implications of AI-assisted professionals, and the concerns around a post-truth world due to deepfakes and AI-generated content. I think what's also good is they both have younger children,、um, so that shapes their perspective. And I have heard from people who are like, "Oh, you know, how do I think about this as I have kids?"、Uh, and obviously, I'm very happily child-free, but. Emad and Peter both have children. I think they're like around aged eleven. So they talk a bit about that in the podcast. So that is the Mindsets and Moonshots podcast. Right. So in personal news, I'm not going to talk about anything because I am still in finishing energy. I, need, I probably need one more week. So next week、uh, I'll be talking about JFPenBooks.com and Catacomb.、Uh, so yes, expect more on that next week. Thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Penny sent some lovely pictures from the morning muster in the dawn light and says, "I listen to your podcast while putting our cattle onto their daily feed of oats in the early hours. A gorgeous walk with spectacular sunrises. The cows are learning a thing or two about writing books." <laughs> That's so great! I love to see pictures like that because it's so different from my life.、Um, so yes, please always send pictures of where you're listening. Wyeth Quinn also sent pictures. Says my walk to the 5 a.m. Writers Club Nook. Fantastic! All these early risers <laughs>、uh, listening to the show, talking about、uh, starting energy, pushing through energy, finishing energy. Add in some Stephen Pressfield's resistance, and you have a good theory of writing. Pushing through, here I come. All the best with your pushing through, Wyeth. Also,、uh, E. Rachel Hardcastle on YouTube left a comment on the discussion with Rachel Heron on publishing options, and she said, "Really interesting interview. Thanks. I fear that most agents and publishers wouldn't risk taking on an indie author, especially one that is really pro indie. But、well, to be honest, if you are really like indie only, then you're not going to do that. But 
most um, professional indie authors think about licensing rights in a way per project, a bit like Rachel and I talked about, that makes sense for your author business. And remember that agents and publishers are business people. And essentially, the ri- you mentioned risk, which I think is really interesting. Isn't it less risk to take on someone who has an established audience, an email list, is used to marketing? Um, so yes, E. Rachel says... Um, I love the freedom of indie and the creativity and control, but I struggle to get the sales I feel my books deserve. The hard work versus whether it's paying off is questionable. Any suggestions for fixing this? So I I feel like the difficulty in making sales is actually not is is a problem that traditional publishers have as well. <laughs> so don't expect to if you get a, a traditional book deal to just give up any way of marketing because most publishers want authors who do marketing. And I've had um, authors on the show before. Claire McIntosh was a particularly good interview. Claire is, uh, as we speak now, I think still entirely traditionally published and talked about how the marketing she does. And the most successful traditionally published authors also do marketing. So I think we need to separate the sort of, um, I want a traditional publisher to do the marketing side. That's kind of not not really the thing. In fact, I would feel it's the other way. If I pitch some of my projects, I'll be pitching it in a way that says, I'm pitching this, but I'm also pitching everything else I do for marketing. And that is a good package for an agent or a publisher and reduces risk. And that is, as you say, what business is about. So remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen, send me pictures of where you're listening, email me joanna at thecreativepen.com, leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. One easy way to reach a new audience on Kobo is through their non-exclusive subscription service, Kobo Plus. Just to emphasise, non-exclusive. So you can be in Kobo Plus as well as Sell Direct and be on every other store. Uh, So it's fantastic. It is available in 10 strategic locations. Kobo Plus offers customers unlimited reading, listening or both as a KWL author, you can add your ebooks and audiobooks to Kobo Plus right in your account. There's no exclusivity or time limitation, and you have the option of adding all locations or selecting specific ones. Want to try out a book in Kobo Plus in the US but not in France? You can do that. This was created to give authors as much control as possible. If you're choosing to publish wide as an author, Kobo Plus is a great way to gain and build an audience and ultimately increase your author earnings. If you want to learn more about KWL and Kobo Plus, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you're listening to this, and find them on social media. If you haven't done so yet, you can create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. And the Kobo team are always super friendly and will answer your questions. So feel free to email them if you have questions. 
So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating this show is sponsored by my patrons and especially the extra AI episodes, futurist stuff and all of that. I'm especially grateful to patrons who've been supporting the show for years and months. You are fantastic. It demonstrates you find the show useful still after all these years and want it to continue. So thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Rhonda Lane and Jeanette Jensen. If you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only, which I just sent out this week, which is around 45 minutes of audio where I answer questions about writing craft, publishing, book marketing, making a living with your writing, all the aspects of business. I also answer AI questions, technology stuff and share discount codes and all of that kind of thing. You can support the show with just a few dollars or euros or pounds or many other currencies and it is less than a coffee a month and you support the podcast and you also get the extra monthly Q&A audio and the entire backlist of audio. So lots to learn from there. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Michael Brent Collings is the multi-award nominated, internationally best-selling author of over 50 books across horror, thriller, fantasy, sci-fi and more, as well as a produced screenwriter and speaker. So welcome back to the show, Michael Brent. Hello, Joanna. It's always so fun to hang out with you. <laughs> it is. And sixth time on the show, it is a record. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to a coat, a letterman's jacket of some kind, just something, you know, with my name on it and the creative pen across the back. So I feel like a legit rock star. <laughs> you really are. And over the years, we've <laughs> talked about writing hooks and book descriptions, how to reboot a flagging author career. We've also talked about writing with depression, which is a very popular episode. Also how to write fast and how to write horror. So we've covered mm. a lot. Today's discussion kind of covers elements of some of these things. So we're just going to jump straight in because at the moment I'm working on this book about writing from the shadow side of the self and you get your top of mind for someone who does this. Because <laughs> so, I'm best viewed in the shadows so that's my <laughs> life. <laughs> Not at all but you've been so open about some of this darker stuff. So I wanted to start with what do you think is part of that shadow side for you? Well, for me, there's a lot of stuff. And I tell people that they look at me and every time I'm on a show, not with you, but with other people that I don't know, and I get through and they're like, oh, you were so nice. Like they were expecting me to be doing voodoo during the show or chanting in the background, or like I was going to reach through their screen and make a wallet out of their face skin or something horrific. And so much of it is just upbringing. Like my dad was an expert on Stephen King. He was literally the world expert on Stephen King for 20 years. So I tell people I grew up with screaming and typing in the next room. That's what I went to bed with. And that changes a person, you know? So part of it's that. And part of it was I just had a, uh, I had a tough time of it when I was young. And I, some of that was self-inflicted. I was kind of a snotty kid and I'm this little tiny kid and I'm a genius. Literally, my mom was taking me to college in sixth grade so I could have math class there. And I let people know it. So I'm sitting there as like the worst kind of nerd that you've ever experienced. And people reacted to that. And so because of that, I didn't have a lot of friends. And it took a long time to figure out how to kind of overcome that 
part of myself that was so low self-esteem, I needed to tell everyone how great I was. And But really, it, it was a function in self-inflicted wounds that caused me to kind of cave in. And we also had mental health problems in my family that made things difficult. There was a lot of stress in the air. Despite there being a lot of love, there was also a lot of, of challenges. And so being kind of small, feeling helpless, despite the fact that I was pretty smart and it just compressed into this one little package that was like, I'm going to write some stuff to make me feel better. And my first story I can remember was about killing my brother. So obviously there was some dark (laughs) crap in there. That's that's great. I mean, it's interesting having siblings. I'm the eldest of five siblings and I have one brother who's quite close to me in age. And yeah, I do remember almost trying to kill him many yeah. times. I would kind of flip him <laughs> up uh, upside down when he was smaller than me. And I don't know what it is about siblings. I mean, have you watched Succession? Uh, no, I haven't. That's on my to-do list because I've heard so many good things about it and oh, it's got well, such good people in it. It's possibly the most violent show on TV without physical violence, as in it huh. between siblings, it is incredibly violent. So it's interesting. Yeah. Family. So I guess family is one of those things in our shadow, like the things that come up around family. And I guess guilt around feeling that way. Do you think guilt sits in the shadow? I think so for sure. I mean, again, like even in my description, I was like, and it was self-inflicted because everything that you look back on, on your life and so much of life is built around regret. You know, I don't want to become my parents. And so I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that. And despite all that, I turn into my father anyways, and I feel bad about that, or I feel good about it. And it's great. And cause it turns out that he was wonderful, you know, as you age, your perspective changes. And then you're like, it switches immediately to like, Oh, I must've been really crappy to my dad, you know, and I want to avoid these mistakes I made with my children. And so I'm going to push them a certain direction. That's all about, it's less about their life lived than the life I regret living. You know, there's so much that that we focus our regret into our family lines because they're generational hope for the future. You know, it's like, I want to leave something wonderful behind. So I'm going to make sure my kids don't suck as much as I did. And of course that, that ends up <laughs> twisting them up terribly. Yeah. It's, I, I'm just thinking that you mentioned your kids, obviously you talked about your dad and your brother. And is it that fear of losing family is one of my tropes I think that comes up in my writing it's often about sisters I have two sisters and doing things for family who are in jeopardy so I mean you have kids your kids are some of them I think are quite young but yet you do have children in jeopardy in your books so how do you bring those fears into your writing I think the one thing that you have to be careful with before we say anything else is like you don't want to turn your books into therapy the one thing that that every therapist has in common in the whole world is they require payment. So if I'm going to therapy, I pay my therapist and that's fine. But if I write a book and I use that for therapy and then I turn around to the therapist and say, that'll be $4.99 or $9.99 or whatever Mm -hmm. the price of the book is, they're going to be like, no, 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 that's not how it works. I think taking the core of the things that worry you and the things that terrify you and turning that into the basis of a book is a tremendously good idea because we tend to be worried about kind of universal things when you drill down. The danger comes when you're just using it exclusively as a self-improvement vehicle. And in that case, you're going to be really self-indulgent and long-winded and people aren't going to care. So, But when you get down to it, yeah, families are incredibly important because every single person has one. I mean, they either have an actual one that they live with currently that they love slash hate, because there's always that stuff bound up no matter how good the family, 
or they have the family they wish they had, you know, the people that are orphaned or abandoned or what have you, they can't help but look around at the kind of nuclear examples around them and say, what if I had had that? And why didn't I have that? And there's so many questions that are fundamental to human nature that are really rooted in where did I come from and where am I going? And that's by definition, kind of a familial question. And so those things matter tremendously. And my wife and I lost a child years back, and that became the root of one of my most terrifying books, which is called Apparition. And it's not terrifying because it's the greatest book of all time, but just the concept is there's this thing out there that makes parents kill their children. That's like a demon and it consumes the blood and the fear of the children. And then it withdraws and consumes the madness of these parents that, that realize what they've done. And I wrote that in large measure as a way of kind of working through what I was experiencing, having just lost my own child. Which is an awful experience, but just on the writing side there, you said don't write for therapy. And yet you wrote this book as part yeah. of dealing with that. So where's that yeah. line? Like, how do you know? Or so, is it writing grief edit outside of it? I don't know. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's really part of it is you're going to, so much of what we write is it's got to be for ourselves. It has to be fulfilling and enjoyable. I've written just for the money and I can do it, but it's really, it's 10 times harder. I wake up late in the morning. I don't want to get started because it's just a job. It's just digging a ditch, you know, and I'm using my mental processes instead of my physical ones. So at its heart, if you want a long-term career, if you want to have a career that you enjoy day to day, you have to enjoy the process. And so part of what we write has to, on its surface level, be about the writer. It has to be something that I find fulfilling or interesting, but In the editing process, and there's two editing processes, there's one at the end where you put all the bells and whistles on and you make it beautiful, but there also has to be one at the beginning, which is here's an idea. This is my personal opinion, but there should be an editing process at the beginning, which is this is something I'm interested in. Is this universal? Is this something that will speak to other people? Or is it just about me? If it's just about me, I'll write it and then put it in a drawer because that is therapy. It's something I'm working through. If I can figure out a way, if it starts out universal, or if I can figure out a way to broaden it somehow or to narrow it and make it more applicable to others, then that's where kind of the preliminary magic comes in. So with this book, Apparition, if it had just been a dad kind of I'm going to write my journal about what it feels like to lose a kid and how hard that is. And there's a lot of sadness. And at the end, I realize I'm not quite so sad anymore. You know, that would not be a book that maybe grabbed people. So I had to say, well, how can I kind of discuss what I want to talk about, which is this horrific event in a way that's going to be useful and helpful for me, but also make it enjoyable or useful or helpful to others as well. So before I even started writing that, there was definitely an end in mind, which is this is going out into the world and it can't just be Michael Brent stars in a Michael Brent book about Michael Brent saying, woe is me, Michael Brent. It just mm. wouldn't have worked very well. <laughs> and there, I mean, there are other things. You mentioned mental health and obviously we've done a show on depression And I wrote a bit about suicidal thoughts in my book, Delirium, and also in Pilgrimage, a recent memoir. And I feel like this, uh, the mental health issues are also something that, that you do tackle in your life, but also in your writing. So how does that side come into your writing? 
it's it's like any other part of you. So for those who haven't heard the other shows, I have major mental health problems. I have major depressive disorders, suicidal tendencies, and psychotic breaks. And that's just, it's me. It's my reality. So, you know, if I lose an arm in an accident, I'm going to type differently from then forward. And it's just necessity-based. And this isn't losing an arm, but it it does lock up certain parts of my brain and it unlocks other ones, which is nice. You know, I do a lot more of my own editing than most people do successfully, simply because people are like, how do you do that? And I go, well, you have to start out with a deep disdain for yourself. You know, I'm not in love with my work <laughs> because it came from me. And at my heart, there's this broken thing that's like, oh, well, everything you do sucks. And that's a really good place to come from for a self-editing pass. <laughs> um or working with an editor. I just sold a pitch a while back for a series to a national publisher. And every time they came back with a note, I could tell they were worried I was going to fly off the handle. And instead I was like, my problem is I didn't think of that. My only issue with your suggestion is it's so good. I'm worried you're going to tell people you came up with it. So it's long story short is you find a way to live with who you are. And that's a really important thing to be, to do as an author, because what we're doing is creating these communities. We're telling stories that bind people together. And I would hope that if we're choosing that as a livelihood and as a vocation, that we're binding people together with good ties, that we're saying, here's the reality. Some of us are broken, but here's the other reality. We find ways to go on. And so, of course, as someone who deals with mental health problems day to day, I'm going to include those in my stories as much as a way of saying, hey, they're survivable as anything else. And as you're talking there, and I don't think your mental health problems are in your shadow because you absolutely acknowledge them. They're part of your life. Like you said, it's just who you are. So perhaps that isn't part of your shallow. Perhaps that used to be part of mine, as in I didn't used to talk about having thoughts like that, about, say, suicidal tendencies or whatever. I didn't think that was acceptable, so I didn't talk about it. So that if we deny that part of ourselves, that's what goes into the shadow. So this is an interesting question then. If you're yeah. if you can are there things, I guess, that are in your shadow that you or that you've brought out from your shadow? Perhaps we can't even acknowledge those things if mm-hmm. they're deeply buried. But are there things perhaps you've dug out over time? Oh, sure. And I love the shadow analogy because, you know, what a shadow is, it's just an unexamined outline. I mean, if you look at what a shadow really is, it's, it is a place where your outline has gotten in the path of something and made it a little darker. You've had this interesting interaction between illumination and the whatever's standing behind you. And that is very much like so many of our problems. They're self-inflicted in that instead of dealing with them, we avoid them. And dealing with them doesn't mean they go away or they become less powerful. I deal, like I said, and like you said, I deal with my mental health stuff. It's not like I woke up one morning and was like, oh my gosh, I'm depressed. And now I feel better. <laughs> you know, It was like, oh my gosh, I'm depressed. And now at least when I feel like opening a vein, I can be like, hold on a little bit. This will go away. Hold on a little bit. This will go away. And it still affects every part of my life. I think the danger is denying the reality of those things. You know, if you stand there, the danger is looking at a shadow and saying, oh, that's not me. Oh, that couldn't be me. Mm -hmm. Oh, look how warped that shadow is. That's definitely not mine. We've all walked down the street at sunset and seen our shadow stretch 82 feet ahead of us. And we look at that and go, there's no way that giant tall guy is me or that weirdly chubby guy is me at noon or whatever. And they're all us. They're all aspects of us 
that depends on the direction we're facing and what part of life we're examining. If we're looking towards the light, there's less shadow. And if we're looking away from it, which is the job of a horror writer in some respects is to look at evil and discern it and describe it, then there's going to be a lot more shadow apparent in our field of view. But it really isn't about whether the shadow exists or not, or whether it's us or not. Yes, it exists. Yes, it's us. It's kind of the direction we're pointing. And if we can clarify the line between where shadow ends and the rest of kind of reality begins. You totally avoided the question. (laughs) I, I did because, well, because I think the question was, is there anything that we bring out of that shadow and make ourselves into ourselves? Or is there things that we can't bring out? And I don't think there are things that we can't bring out. I think there is a question of, if I bring this out and then spread it around, is that going to be helpful or harmful? I feel like there are creators out there, be they artists, authors, whatever, whose whole thing is like, well, this is my muse. And even though it's destructive and hurts people, I'm going to cast it around because I feel like doing it. And I find that to be in any other business that's a sociopath and we avoid that person. And in our business, it's like, oh, they're following their muse. How wonderful. So I think- (laughs) We can talk about anything. I think it behooves us to care for its effect on those we speak to. So um, you and I were talking earlier about, I just sold this series idea and it's a middle grade series and it's actually quite dark. It's got a lot of horror to it. And I'm continually talking to the editors going, I think we can talk about anything to kids. Children survive the Holocaust. We can discuss anything with kids. Now, the way we discuss it matters. So when my two-year-old comes up and says, how are babies made? I go, you know, we've all heard the, when a mommy and daddy love each other very much, (laughs) they stay together and magic. It's like this very kind of vague and it ends with, and come back in 10 years. And and then we tell them more as time goes on. It's never a lie, but we tell them the story in a way that they'll understand and be uplifted and benefited rather than like, I remember my parents telling me about sex and I just had bad dreams that night because the whole process sounded horrific. <laughs> so I think, you know, but I needed to know about it. It's just a question of how and the moment we choose to tell people. So, yeah, I think there's no such thing as something so dark we can't talk about it. I definitely think that there's darkness that we have to be careful with. Yeah, and I think some of the things that go into the shadow are are the things that we are told are not appropriate. So I remember being at school, I think I was around 11 years old and I wrote an essay and it was funny you talk about murdering your brother because I I had to choose between my dad and my sister being beheaded. <laughs> like, oh I gosh. still remember it. It's in my it's in my mind. I can picture Joanna it. Joanna Pan people, legit darkness. <laughs> well, it was this awful choice. So my dad and yeah. sister on one side and my mum and my brother on the other side, like being boiled Yikes. alive in one of those cauldrons. And my parents <laughs> had divorced and it was all about choosing between family which is uh, the terrible choice the sort of Sophie's choice idea and I wrote this essay and my teacher instead of sort of these days they just report you to the school counselor or whatever but back then this was the 80s you know she basically said that was entirely inappropriate to write a story like that and and I should be writing something like Black Beauty and so I really Mm -hmm. feel like from that young age I was essentially told that it was unacceptable to think these darker thoughts and that I could only write in this sort of happy, happy way. And therefore, I think probably 25 years of pushing inappropriate 
darker writing into my shadow before it kind of <laughs> came back out again. So, yeah. I mean, did you have that? This is inappropriate, Michael Brent, or have you had to deal with that? Or has it always been fine for you to write about these things? I was very lucky in that I had parents who not not just encouraged me and supported me, but gave me what I think is a really healthy outlook on appropriateness and inappropriateness. My, We were watching the John Carpenter movie, The Thing. And we're watching it, oddly enough, for in, in my church, because I'm a church-going person, we had this thing called Family Home Evening. And so on Monday nights, the families were supposed to get together and have a little church, like a scripture or something. And then you have an activity and a refreshment, some kind of brownies or whatever. And so we're doing that. And we had our scripture and then dad's like, and now we're going to watch Aliens and The Fly. So like our family home evening devolved into this, you know, we're going to watch scary movies. And for one of the scary movies, it was the thing. And I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but the movie's like 45 years old. And the alien that's the bad guy, that's the antagonist, can assume any shape and its individual parts are self-sufficient. So they're burning this person who they've determined is one of the alien mimics. And as they're burning it alive, its head pulls away from its body, sprouts legs and scuttles off. And that's happening on the VCR. I'm like nine years old. My mom pauses it and stands there and goes, you're about to hear a word. I want you to pay attention to the word. And then she unpauses it. And one of the guys goes, you've got to be effing kidding me. And she pauses it again and says, that is the only circumstance under which I want to hear that word come out of your mouth. If a guy's head has just pulled off and sprouted legs and walked away, you are allowed to use that word. And it was funny because she was making a point about not saying certain things, but the lesson we all got that was a much better lesson, I think, which is there's no such thing as a bad word or a bad thing to say. Nobody's ever said a word to another person and had blood erupt from their ears because that word is an inherently harmful bunch of sound, you know, that hits us and causes an explosion in our brains. You know, we're not, it's not a scanners kind of a situation, but what we do have are words that we use inappropriately or say bad things about us or about our beliefs or are harmful to other people. And so again, with these shadow moments, my parents were saying, it matters how you tell these stories. It matters what you're trying to accomplish. Are you trying to spread your pain to others. Well, that's not a good thing. Let's not do that. Are you trying to deal with your pain? That's a fine thing. Are you trying to deal with your pain in a way that's more universal and can maybe help other people? That's an excellent thing. And so I actually received very little pushback. My dad, because he's the Stephen King expert, he's got all of these books in his, he's got tens of thousands of books in his home office and he arranged them by appropriateness for my age. And he walked me in and he said, if you can reach a book, you can read a book. And he had put <laughs> the, great. you know, the naughty or scary ones on the top shelf. So I pull out a step ladder and I'm reading, you know, it at age 10 or whatever. Great um, book. <laughs> some, yeah. Oh, which is a fantastic book, but it wasn't exactly what he envisioned, but he watches, he walks in and he catches me doing it. And he's like, well, okay. So the alternative now is we're going to talk about these books. And I think that was so much more helpful sitting down and going, what did you pull out? Why did you think it was good or bad that they did this? And how is that going to change your life? And I think that was a much more healthy approach. And so if you, if we bump into somebody and they tell us something dark and deep and we react with horror or with disgust, that is not only harmful. I, that borders on the criminal, you know, there's this big 
there's this huge debate over whether we should have more gun control. And I'm not getting into that here, but I am saying, I don't think we're going to stop seeing mass casualty events until we have a little bit more of a forgiving attitude when people choose to share. You know, if somebody says, I'm a neo-Nazi and my first response is, get away from me, you scum. Well, I've just excised from that person's life any chance of improvement. What I should be saying is like, okay, let's sit down and talk about this and let me see if I can help you. And I'm not saying that we should forgive forever and allow people to run rampant, but I do think there's this really kind of harsh attitude that's become prevalent where you better have been born with the proper attitudes and ideas and had them since day one. And if not, you're a bad person. And for me, I'm like, I want to look at 20 years ago, see all the stupid things you said and all the dumb things you did, and then meet you now and say, wow, you've become incredible. And I think that only comes when we allow people to make those mistakes and allow people to engage with that shadow part to say, hey, I have this darkness. I don't understand. How can I deal with it? Maybe not fix it because some of them aren't fixable, but how can I deal with it? How can I turn it from a weakness into a great strength? It's so interesting you mentioned swearing because I hadn't even put that on my list of what might even be in someone's shadow side. But it's so funny because it, it and it's American. Sorry, the British mm-hmm. people just don't care about this stuff. But <laughs> I mean, my original books, when I started writing fiction, I had some swear words mm-hmm. in because I swear and most people I know swear as part of life. Sure. And so that was mm-hmm. kind of a character thing. And then I got these reviews from Americans who were like, you know, they don't mind you killing people in terrible ways, but a swear word, it means very, very bad. So it's so interesting. It's like you say, we're not going to talk about politics, but there are obviously some very big things that people agree with or disagree with, which Mm -hmm. people react against. And I wonder if, is it just culture, upbringing, uh, the things that we think are wrong are because of how we've been brought up. Because clearly there are many Christians, for example, in the USA who believe completely opposite things based on the same book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it's all. Yeah. So it, And then the things that a religion or a family or a culture says is wrong, that then is what we if we think that that gets pushed into the shadow because it's not acceptable. So for me, swearing was fine, but talking about Mm -hmm. death was bad. Whereas for you, talking about death was fine, but swearing was bad. I mean, that's kind (laughs) of crazy. (laughs) Right. It's well, and again, it was like my parents, I will admit I have said an F word or two in my life. And I, my dad actually wrote an entire article on the F word. It was great about why we say it and why it's so powerful and stuff like that. It was, it's fantastic. It's such a good article because he's an English professor. So he wasn't just sitting there musing in his basement. It was part of his job. (laughs) But yeah, what you say brings such an important point to light, which is, the things that bother me are nothing to other people and vice versa. And that's why I think it is so important that we have, first of all, a cautious outpouring of our shadow. That is try and be aware if it's going to be harmful to somebody, be it through cursing or be it through sex or whatever, you know, there's people out there. And I'm not saying give everyone exactly what they want and pander and stuff, because sometimes the best thing we can do is push people a little bit, but just that base awareness that we're part of the human race. And really, I do believe the biggest job of any artist is to create community. That's what we do with our stories is we build groups and they can be toxic, disgusting, horrifying groups that have mind comp at the center of them, or they can be great, wonderful groups that are truly trying to reach out to other people. You know, a lot of it does have to do with upbringing. A lot of it does have to do with culture and environment. But if I go into it, at least with the attitude of like, oh, 
Joanna had a part in her book about, and I say this because like, I know you and you wouldn't do this, but she was just ripping on the belief system that I have and saying it's stupid and dumb and everybody who's in it is an idiot. Well, I've tried to teach my kids when you run across somebody like that, who has that base disagreement, they probably don't really think that about you. They think that about whatever they've heard about something. And that's very different. That's like judging the entire horror genre by a specific horror movie poster. The movie posters tend to be pretty grim and dark and scary and just with despair and terror as their only feature. And that's a very one-dimensional view of horror. Horror has this whole broad spectrum of cool stuff to it. Mm. Um, and so when whenever we run into something that we don't understand or that we deeply disagree with, rather than saying, oh, well, that's crazy, which is an easy label to apply, which means I no longer have to engage with you because you make no rational sense. Most people make a lot of rational sense. It's just based on a series of events in their life that are so rational different from ours, we have no framework for understanding them. And the job of good humans is to get together and build new frameworks together, you know, hopefully when we're doing what we should be. So again, it all comes down to, we're never going to be able to pull out all the evil in our souls, in our base biology, and just be like, all that's left is just kumbaya and love. That's not how nature functions, at least as we have it, all uh, absent some pretty big changes. But what we do have is an ability to empathize. We do have a capacity to sympathize. We do have the basic concept of communication. And that's something that's wonderful. And that's what we do as writers that are looking at darkness is we go, hey, when you're talking about darkness, you're not just talking about events in a vacuum. You are talking about shadow, which means there's a real person casting it. There's a real person who, first of all, might be blocking some light off, but also that means they're standing in the light somehow. You know, nobody is a hundred percent evil. So let's, let's find that shadow. Let's dig it out. Let's bring it into light and make it an acceptable part of them by teaching them how to deal with it or how to function with it. And that's one of the best things horror does at its, at its most basic level. You know, I have so many people who write me talking about how horror is so hopeful for them. I had this one email years back. This lady said, I'm going to the hospital. You don't have to respond. I'm dying. It's my final visit to the hospital and I will die there. And I'm taking your books, your scariest books, because they give me hope. Mm -hmm. um, and so much of that of horror is even if everybody dies in the end of the book, you close the book at the end and the reader lives on. The reader has become this survivor by proxy. And I think we need more stories that teach people that. Not that you're debased and awful for liking this, but you, unlike the people in the book, made it through and came out different and hopefully better. Yeah, I find uh, the your book, I haven't read all your books, you have a lot of books, but I've read a lot of your books and hope and it's the human versus the monster, external monster or internal monster. And usually there's a bit of good that wins in the end or a light in the darkness or something. And that's what I like about the horror genre. But I think what's yeah. interesting as well is that what's in the shadow, it, it doesn't have to be evil or horror or any of that. What's so interesting, for example, about the romance and erotica, but even just romance, is that people will potentially hide that they read stuff mm -hmm. like that. And, and I remember meeting some indie romance authors, you know, 
10, 15 years ago now and being just amazingly surprised because I, having been to a sort of literary course at university and my mum was an English teacher, being told there are certain books that have value and others that don't. And you know what I mean? So it doesn't, it's the thing, I think what's in our shadow are the things that we might be ashamed of or feel guilty or hide or that type of thing that I feel uh, both you and I are completely open about the things we're talking about. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. actually, it does occur to me that it's very hard to do an interview on the shadow because it is the things we hide. (laughs) Yeah, oh, for sure. (laughs) But yeah, certainly not just horror, is it? Because, I mean, some people will hide their interest in other things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the wonderful strengths of horror is it's, is it shows like, Hey, it's, it's reality. You know, you can't have the sun shining without some shadow in places and you, it wouldn't it be a funny life if every place that there was a shadow, we ran away screaming. Mm-hmm. We'd all be screaming all the time because we live in a world that's not just constant brightness, it's shadow. And that would be a ludicrous way to live, but that's kind of how sometimes again, we insist others act it's like you better not have made a bad joke on twitter 25 years ago or you and i can no longer be friends and i'm like that seems like running from shadows that seems like a ludicrous way to survive rather than look at the person who's casting the shadow and go oh that shadow is really funky and weird looking but oh it turns out this is a beautiful person Mm. my wife is the most gorgeous person i've ever met inside and out i will admit the first time i saw her that my very first thought wasn't like i want to get to know her it was that is the prettiest (laughs) girl i've ever seen and she casts just as weird a shadow as me a frumpy balding guy does we all have these problems we all have these issues and i think most of them stem from places that can be turned to or already are quite good Yeah. So, well, let's try and give some practical tips then, because I, I mean, like I really feel I turned a corner maybe seven, eight years ago when I wrote my book, Desecration. And oh God, it's almost 10 years ago now. (laughs) And it's (laughs) kind of like I stopped self-censoring. I didn't stop, but I started down the road of talking about the fact that I like graveyards, for example, or I like like the corpse art and all of that kind of thing. And so I was able to start talking about it as I started to, to write about it. But what tips can you give authors to get over self censorship and tap into that shadow side? I think one of the biggest ones is first of all, find the right audience. You know, if, if you are talking to someone who is visibly uncomfortable about your subject matter, you don't have to convert them to the gospel of horror. Like I don't like erotica. I'm never going to like erotica. That doesn't mean I think all erotica writers are evil people or I can't speak to them or anything like that. But it does mean if someone's pitching me an erotica book, I'm not going to be interested, you know? And and if all that person wants me for is pitching their erotica book, that's going to become a tiresome relationship very quickly. So if you have a friend and you're like, oh, I'm writing this book and it does feature graveyards and corpse art and they start like wiggling around, visibly uncomfortable, you can ask them if you're close, be like, oh, am I making you uncomfortable and why? And maybe that's a great growth moment for both of you to discover more about each other. But if this is like somebody you met yesterday and you're never going to see again, maybe that's not the right person to sit down and be like, let me tell you why you're wrong to be uncomfortable about this and why it's awesome. I feel like so many of the, the mistakes that we make involving inflicting involve inflicting our point of view on people who are neither prepared nor interested and might be at a different time. You know, so many people 
have come around to horror because they went to a panel that I was on and they were like, this guy's funny. And so I'll write, read one of his books and, oh, it's scary. I didn't realize it would be scary because he makes a lot of jokes, but okay, I'll, I'll keep with it. And now they're a horror lover, you know, it's approaching people at the right time. So if you don't want to be ashamed, don't talk to somebody, you know, is going to shame you. I'm talking about if you love something innocuous, that's harmless. Like I love romance. Don't talk to the, you know, big burly Marine who has already stated bluntly that romance is for wimps and idiots. Maybe go find a community that supports it first. And then you can become friends with that burly Marine. And as you become friends, he'll, he becomes, comes to respect you. And while you're out shooting together, because you do that, you're like, yeah, this is just like a scene in my favorite romance book. And he's like, what? You know, and now you're say, they all love romance. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's me bluntly stereotyping as someone with a huge number of friends who are army and marine and stuff. But I'm making a silly analogy that we're all humans, you know, and the problem is usually it's less about subject matter than it is about timing. So if you want to break out of that and and not feel ashamed, well, first of all, recognize it's part of you. And you can be ashamed of it if you feel like it's down and it's grim and nasty and genuinely evil stuff. And in that case, seriously, seek help. Like you might genuinely need help with something, not even because it's bad, but because you have something horribly broken in you that's that's wounded and needs help with. But if you're looking at it and you're just ashamed because none of your friends like it, and it's like, I have a really good buddy who's a contractor and he is a hardcore gamer. Um and he loves D&D and we go to comic cons together and he'll dress up in like a full cosplay outfit with like a bustier and stuff like this. He's like full steampunk. He doesn't wear that to the job site because he's just knows the reaction is not going to be helpful. So he went out and found a second community and it enriched his life because now he gets, he gets to do the job stuff he loves and he's got this community he loves. So look at the difference between something that's evil and something that you just haven't found the community to share with. Those are very different things. Um, mm -hmm. And I think most of us get caught up in a confusion between them. Yeah, I agree. I think being open to that. I mean, I when I've spoken at things, I'll say, okay, who in the room likes graveyards? And it's usually about 30% of people yeah. in a room. And this isn't a, a horror convention or anything. This is just, and yeah. I'll be like, okay, you, you'll probably like my books. <laughs> <laughs> because like there's just a thing that we have in common yeah. and I've just found that's a really good way of doing it but the other thing I was gonna say is I mean a lot of erotica writers and some horror writers a lot of romance writers will use a pseudonym uh, mm -hmm. as a way to almost protect their normal normal I say normal life um, yeah. you use your same name for everything but as you said you, you go to church you're a family man you're writing middle grade so have you ever thought about writing under a pen name or is, has that ever been a thing not really I mean I did for a while when I wrote some western romance I used Angelica Hart but it wasn't like a shame thing it was just women writers sell better in that genre and I actually ditched it because women were starting to write me and like this 40 year old divorced woman is like you're my best friend and nobody else understands me and those men and I'm like oh she's gonna oh. kill me when she finds <laughs> out so I ditched it because it was just too hard being two people for me but if you feel like you have to be protected that way that's a rough situation I've never had massive amounts of blowback. I have very often had confused looks. 
like in church, I used to teach, I used to be in charge of the Sunday school for my congregation and a new person would come in and I'd be talking to them after Sunday school, after I gave a lesson and they'd be like, what do you do? Cause it comes up. Oh, I write scary books. And they're like, like Harry Potter, you know, that was kind of their default, like Harry Potter. And I go, yeah, sort of like only, but like Hermione gets really mad in the middle of it and blows Harry up and then sets fire to Ron. And, and they were so taken aback by that. And I, of course, did it for effect and as a laugh. And I'd chuckle and I'd tell them about like the scariest book I ever read was this one about this guy who gets nailed to a tree. And <laughs> yeah, there's some horror know, in the Bible. <laughs> right. And so again, it's timing and it's understanding. And I'm going like, whatever you think of when you're thinking about horror, person who hates horror, that's probably actually not what I write. Because most of us actually overlap a lot. Another thing my parents taught me was don't ever be ashamed to raise your hand and say, "Eh, I don't understand. We worry about doing that because we worry about looking stupid. And they're like, 80% of the class has that question. You're going to have 20% of the class that thinks you're stupid and 80% for whom you're the hero for finally asking the question that they needed asked. Mm -hmm. And I find it's very much the same in literature. I'm going to write a book all about graveyards. Oh, I don't know if anyone... No, people love graveyards. As soon as you said graveyards, I was like, those things are cool. And it wasn't because I think of zombies and I think of evil, you know, the evil dead coming out. I just think they're beautiful. And I actually, when we're traveling and I see a graveyard, we'll very often stop off and enjoy kind of the vibes and the feelings there. There's so much love in a graveyard. And so for me, it's not a dark place at all. And so you find that overlap and you realize, oh, the horror lover and the horror hater, they both love graveyards. They love them maybe for slightly different reasons, but there's still that huge commonality that we can talk about. And if I try and sell the horror hater on a horror novel, he's going to say no, or she's going to say no. But if I say, hey, I wrote this book about this cool thing that happens at a graveyard and it turns into this thrilling adventure, they're like, I'm totally in, you know? So again, it's a way, it's a way we present it as much as anything. It's so interesting, isn't it? That maybe these things come up over time. For example, I was mentioning to you before we started recording that I'm coming up to, oh no, I am actually 48 years old. And (laughs) I almost feel that age, I mean, we're fine with death, but I think age and maybe you're used to mental illness, but I almost feel like physical illness, old age, Mm -hmm. the things that change us as we get older being a woman going through hormonal changes and the stuff that comes up at this time, these are all things that just suddenly appear in the shadow Mm -hmm. and that you, you didn't even have to acknowledge until they start happening to you. Yeah. Um, And that maybe that's part of why we write is that we deal with these things as they come up by writing. So like my memoir pilgrimage, I talk about a lot of this stuff and, Almost by writing it, it comes out of the shadow and now it's out there and it's fine now. I can talk about Mm -hmm. it because it's out Mm -hmm. there. But do you think that's why, I mean, horror writers are, I think, psychologically very healthy because they kind of take the things out the shadow, put them in the light, put them in a book and it's kind of done. Is that how you think it is for you? Yeah, I think so. And I think you're right. It's, it is for most horror writers. Most of them are very well adjusted. It's because everyone has demons. The difference is the demons that horror writers have, we make them sing for their supper. You know, we don't get rid of them. We just do, we harness them and make them kind of useful. I think 
what you said is so incredibly important, you know, about aging. And I'm going through that too. Like, I just can't sleep through the night anymore simply because I have old injuries that have cropped up. And I've always had a bad back since I was in my early 30s. And it's just impossible to sleep in one position anymore. And that's really rough. And it's terrifying because it's like, well, I thought I understood the way my life is. And now I'm not assured that I can pick up a shopping bag today. And that was kind of a you know, I could do that. That was a basic idea. And we write about these things as a way of defining them. As soon as you, as soon as you describe it, you have to use words to do that. And those words have definitions. And so you've defined the problem. And if you look at the word define, I mean, it literally, the literal etymology of it has to do with placing boundaries around something. And so we've contained our terror within this definition. I don't understand aging. Well, I'm going to write about it. And now I do understand it. Maybe not fully, maybe not completely, but I understand it enough that it's just not as terrifying for me. Or I understand what will always be terrifying about it. I wrote a book called The Deep because I'm scared of of oh, I love the ocean. That book. It really, you know, I love oh, that thank book. you. I do. But I, <laughs> the ocean is so scary. And I wrote it and I was like, well, my conclusion is the ocean is still scary. And so I will avoid the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but I can deal with that. You know, I moved to a landlocked area and I'm fine. And and I say it in jest, but that really is, that's part of what we do is we're figuring out our boundaries. We're figuring out where we can go mentally and physically. And we're like, well, I'll enjoy the areas that I can enjoy and the other areas I will avoid them. That's just healthy living. And I do think horror, horror does that a lot for the authors. They're like, I'm going to talk about the stuff that terrifies me until it no longer does. And I feel like that's part of why I've managed to write so many books is I'm just scared of a ton of things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's super. It's super healthy to keep writing about these things. So you have written a lot of books, and you also help authors a lot through lots of different things. You do lots of speaking, and you've got a new course for authors at Bestseller Life. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? How it can help authors, and where people can find it. So it's bestsellerlife.com and it's about becoming your own best story. That's the the slogan is become your own best story or the logo or motto or however you want to say it. But it came about because during COVID, my wife and I share computers. And so we get each other's Facebook interests popping up, you know, and she started getting all of these ads for people teaching her how to write or how to be a bestseller. Cause I'm constantly learning that stuff and taking classes and courses and trying to improve. And I was like, oh, send them to me. I'm always interested. And the great majority of them, you go to their Amazon page and it's someone who's written like three books, maybe, and has a total of eight reviews, maybe, and has sold maybe 10 copies, you know? And so I finally was like, I'm going to build one that's real based on all the stuff that I know. So essentially bestsellerlife.com, it is a full suite of information that's, this is how Michael Brent does it from start to finish. So it includes my writing methods, my marketing methods. It's still being built out. I update it weekly. And part of that sale will go to charity um, because that's another thing that's important. Like we've talked about, I think the biggest job of an artist and an author and a creator is to make the world better and bind people together and help stuff. And, you know, you put a hundred artists or a hundred authors against the wall and say, what's the secret to your success? And you're going to get a hundred different answers because we all approach it differently, but there are still, there are principles that work. And so that's what bestsellerlife.com is about is those principles and fundamentals that will help you kind of build your platform and build your audience and jumpstart your writing and get it to your own, to the next level. So you can become your own best story and be satisfied with not just where you are, but where you're going. And just to be clear, is that for just for people who want to write horror or is it for any genre? No, no, that's any genre. And I, and again, I've written literally everything except erotica. I think I, if you can name a genre, I have done it and done reasonably well in it, you know, 
Um, and so it talks about, it does have specific genre breakdowns in some of the classes. A lot of it is just marketing that works across the board. And I even provide like my marketing copy and the things that I specifically use with breakdowns. I'm like, here's what I do. And obviously you can't write an ad that's about Michael Brent. That wouldn't make any sense, but here are the elements that I use. And here's how you can hopefully adapt them to you wherever you are. So yeah, I wanted it to be across the board, super helpful to anyone, no matter what they're writing. Because again, I'm not talking about specific metabolisms as much as I am here are general principles that work. And then I break them into, and here's how I specifically do them to this effect and hopefully allow people to empower themselves a little bit more. And if people want to try your fiction, where can people find all of that online? Easiest way is just to type the word Michael Brent, all one word, because I'm the only Michael Brent in the world. And that'll bring up my Amazon page and my Facebook page. My website is writteninsomnia.com. Written Insomnia is stories that keep you up all night. And you can go there and check out my stuff. But just honestly, the easiest way is to Google Michael Brent because there's just one. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for your time again, Michael Brent. It's been great as usual. I love being here with you, Joanna. My only regret about about ever coming on a show with you is that we're not neighbors because I would totally hang out with you. In a graveyard. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I hope you found the discussion with Michael Brent interesting and I hope you can also reflect on what might be in your shadow because there is indeed gold in the part of ourselves that we have repressed and held back because others have told us it's unacceptable. So if this topic resonates with you, I'd love you to be part of my shadow survey for my next project about writing from the shadow side. Just go to jfpen.com forward slash shadow survey links in the show notes. That's jfpen.com forward slash shadow survey. So next week, I'm talking to Daniel Wilcox about writing fast, collaboration and author mindset. You might have heard Dan on one of his other podcasts, The Other Stories or Activated Authors. And we have a great discussion, which I know you'll find useful. In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>